Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. The call to confession today is from Proverbs chapter 27, verse 7. One who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. When our stomachs are full, if even they're full of the finest things, when we think of the thought of just one more delicacy, we are sickened of that. But when we are hungry, we are satisfied by the most simple and the basic menu. The wisdom of Proverbs this morning reminds us of the pleasure which flows to us when we choose contentment for our lives. Achieving contentment is a struggle for both of, both of us, whether we're young or we're old. As we wrestle to separate our wants, our needs, our desires, and our dreams with God's will. However, part of the great gain of contentment is the greater pleasure that it brings. Proverbs 15.15 says, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Proverbs 17.22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is being satisfied, it's appreciating, appreciating, enjoying, and being thankful for everything that we have. Whether that be economic standing, our spiritual well-being, emotional strength, physical might or mental capacity, all call for patient contentment. As a culture, we are obsessed with abundance and overindulgence. Objectively, we have more than any other generation before us, yet we call out for more and more. We are, we are addicted to covetousness, bloated with every conceivable pleasure. We are happy, neither happy, nor are we satisfied. We rush from one activity to the next, always looking for the next satisfying event, yet we never really find it. We overwhelm our senses in a mad search for fulfillment, but the end, in the end, it's all just revolting to us. Just like the one whose stomach is full, loathes honey. Often our financial situation is in view when we consider contentment. Scripture says that it's possible to be pleased with whatever we have. Hebrews 13 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This struggle is common to all mankind. Even Israel murmured against their free supply of manna. And then the Lord sent them quail until they despised it. They seemed to be committed to dissatisfaction and discontentment. So as we consider our own hearts in, in this matter of contentment, you might ask yourself these questions. Are you content with your life? Are you truly satisfied and at peace? Is there a joy of your continual feast? Is that obvious to others? Do you enjoy the simple pleasures of honeycomb? Are you thankful for pleasant enjoyments the world would call bitter? Or have you joined their rat race and obsession for more in a vain pursuit of happiness? Paul, pleading with 
God regarding his own thorn in the flesh, receive this word from God. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul, being able to declare his contentment with his station in life, went on to say, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. May we also rest in Christ as we confess our sins together. Please join me where you are if you're willing and able. Please meet. thank you for your word. We thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in your word. That you've shown us that you are our father. That although you are God almighty, creator of heaven and earth, you choose to be in relationship with us as father to children, as father to sons and daughters. Lord, we thank you that your word manifestly proclaims this and teaches this. We thank you for the grace that it bestows upon us, and we thank you for the hope and the joy that it gives to us. We ask now that as we turn into your word, that you will open it up to our souls. May your spirit be present with us. May you illuminate the text. May you illuminate our hearts and minds and eyes so that we might behold, confess, Declare and proclaim your lordship over the world. Lord, we pray for your blessing as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So far in our series on the Apostles' Creed, we've covered several things. The first week, we covered the basic value and wisdom of creeds in general, and the origins of the Apostles' Creed in particular. The next week we covered the first two words of the creed, I believe. We learned that faith is the lens through which we see the world and the mechanism by which we are saved. Last week we got one word farther and covered the content of our faith, which also gives us the structure of the creed. We believe in God. And he reveals himself in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we are Trinitarian. Today we're going to dive into God's fatherhood. Our text this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, 
to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. So in verse, we, verse 3, we see that God, He who is the ultimate being, He who is that He is, Yahweh, is the eternal Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so with Paul, we bless God in response to the glorious promises, the blessings that he has bestowed upon us. We also see that God is almighty, doing what he does according to the good pleasure of his will. In verse 5, and in the whole passage, it is revealed that God's fatherness is real. And it's communicated to us. It's mediated to us by means of his revelation of himself in Jesus, our Lord. He's not only eternal father, but he's our father. He has adopted us. And thence we receive great blessings in this particular relationship. Because God is our father, we are blessed. So we rejoice. And the first thing we learn about the God we believe in We rejoice that the first thing we learn about the God that we believe in in the creed is that he is in a a relationship with us, a relationship of father to child, a relationship of beneficence. He loves us. He is our father. So let's turn to the various scriptures that reveal God as the eternal father. In this, he is equivalent with the Lord God Almighty in the Old Testament, or Yahweh, as revealed in Exodus chapter uh, 3. As God, he is also Almighty. The Father is, is both the Father, in that he's inclined toward us, he has a relationship with us, and he is powerful. He's, he's able to accomplish redemption on our behalf. So there's going to be a little bit of overlap here because I introduced you to God the Father uh, in last, last week's message about the Trinity. Um, so as I mentioned last week, God's fatherhood has been known to the covenant people from the beginning of his constitution of the nation. Um, from Moses' time, God was revealed as the father to his people. In Exodus 4, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. In Deuteronomy 32 in Moses' song. Thus you, you shall deal with the Lord, O foolish... Or do, the, do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father? Has he not made you and established you? Again, in David's dedication of the gifts that were, were given at the end of his reign for the building of the temple, he, he writes a psalm, and it's, and it's recorded for us in First Chronicles 29. But in the introduction, we hear him proclaiming God as their father. Therefore, David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our father, forever and ever. This is that, that equating the one-to-one correlation between Yahweh, the eternal father, and the eternal father. In Isaiah 63, doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from everlasting is your name. And in chapter 64, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter and all we are the work of your hand. 
So God's fatherhood is adequately declared in the Old Testament, but it is not the emphasis of God's relationship to his people in the Old Testament. In fact, if you do a search in regard to God's fatherhood in the Bible, you'll find that God is called Father 16 times in the Old Testament. 16 times God is referred to as the Father. Which isn't very often if you consider the, the, the length and the amount of books in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, God is called our Father more than 250 times. 16 times in the Old Testament. Over 250 times in the New Testament. And even in the New Testament, we see that insistence of, of God as eternal and almighty Father. John chapter 1 verses 12 through 14. But as many as received... Him, the Word, Jesus, to them He gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in His name. So we are children of the Almighty God. Who were born, not of blood, blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, we see this eternal Father being portrayed for us in the New Testament. In John 20, after Jesus' resurrection, he's speaking to uh, Mary. He says, uh, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. And in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So God is the Father to the Son. God, God reveals his fatherhood in Jesus Christ. But the real emphasis on God's fatherhood comes to us in the New Testament because it's an emphasis on the personhood of God. Who is this God who brings salvation to the people of Israel? Who is the God who made the heavens and the earth? How are we supposed to have peace with him? How are we supposed to be in relationship with him? We need to know him as a person. The, the, the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit, as we covered last week. But in the New Testament, Jesus reveals God as our particular Father. God the Father is manifested in Jesus Christ. Today is the transfiguration of our Lord's Sunday. Um, and as the passages we read in the Bible for our, our, our Bible readings declared... What happens when God manifests his glory is that people behold it shining on, on our faces. God, God comes down and speaks with Jesus and, 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 and Moses and Elijah come down and speak with Jesus. Jesus, in praying to God, in close fellowship with him, he, he starts to shine. He starts to glow. He's glorified. It's because God is revealing to men that Jesus is his representative. Jesus is the one who, who shows us who God is. And it, and it starts all the way at the beginning of the Gospel of John. 
He tells us that Jesus' mission was to reveal the Father. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And then Jesus, so where do you go to see this? And we're told it point blank, where do you go to see this? You go to Jesus' teachings. And His teachings are different than the teachings that were already in existence in Israel. He, he, he speaks with authority, not like the scribes or the Pharisees. Or the teachers of the law. Because he revealed new things about God. He tells us that God is our Father. It's his, he's particularly interested in us. And to the nitty gritty details of our lives. He's, he, he tells us that God's our Father. So because of that, we must live like he is close to us. We must have good works in our lives. Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So what we do is a reflection of our relationship to to God, the Father. He tells us that we need to be like God, loving unconditionally, even our enemies. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. We need to be like him. And Paul identifies this manifestation which Jesus has accomplished clearly in Galatians chapter 4. He says, but when the fullness of the time had come... God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that they might receive the adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, God sent Jesus so that we could be God's sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. This this is a close, tight-knit relationship that God has given us. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So in the fullness of time, God sends Jesus to make us his children, because he is indeed our Father. So where does the proverbial rubber hit the road on this? Why does it matter? Why does it matter that God is our Father? Why is it such a big deal? Well, it matters because God loved us. And that's evident in his personhood. It matters because we desperately need him to love us. We're broken. We are hopeless without God. We're needy. We're empty, we're lonely, we're confused, we're sick, we're dying, and we're spiritually dead without God. We wallow in that misery that we talked about in the, in the Westminster Confession this morning. That's the estate in which we live without God's fatherhood. And yet, because God is the God who created the heavens and the earth, and because that God is the God who cares... Comes down to us. He loves us, you and me individually. He loves our wives and our husbands. He loves our children, our parents. That's why it matters. He loved us so much that he gives us hope 
He gives us promises. He gives us His gospel. In Jesus, He covers our sin. He sent Jesus to do that. God the Father did that. He made us. We broke relationship with Him in Adam. We're all born into that state of brokenness. And He loved us. And He dealt with our sin. And He dealt with our separation. And He softens our hearts. And He breathes new life into us. And He does all of this because that is who He is. It is in His very essence to be good to us. Because He is our Father. In 1 John 4, we learn what God is. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. The Father did that. Our Father did that. He sent Jesus to die for us. So that we might live. In this is love. Not that we loved God. It's not in us. But that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So He comes down to us. He intrudes on our brokenness. On our pride and our arrogance. He intrudes on our sin. Because that sin, that brokenness, that arrogance, that pride has resulted in confusion and darkness. We live in a broken world. We see broken fathers. For for many people, because God is a father can be a barrier to to their conversion. Because they hated their father. Our world is broken. There are fathers who don't exhibit perfection as our heavenly father is perfect. But that's a lie about what fatherhood is. It's not the truth. Fatherhood is something where God comes down and gives life. He comes down and plants a seed in our hearts. He comes down and intervenes in order to set us right. Because He is the true Father. Because He is God, He defines what true fatherhood is. And the definition of that is love. This is the love of God that was manifested toward us. He combines mercy and truth together and shows us what love is. You can't have love without mercy. That's harsh. And you can't have love without truth because it's a lie. That's the problem. We bought into the devil's lie. So God shows us Jesus, and Jesus declares love to us. God, the Father, provided a way for us to have peace. His desire is for our salvation. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God wants to save the world. So the first reason that God's fatherhood matters is because God loves us. And it changes everything. The next reason that God's fatherhood matters is because he is God and his power combined with his fatherhood, his inclination towards us, means that his provision for us is sure and real. So first, God loved us. Second, he doesn't leave us once he's loved us. This is why Jesus commands us to pray to our Father. In the Apostle, I mean, sorry, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, do not be like them, the Pharisees and the hypocrites, or, and the heathen. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours, all of this is spoken to the Father. The Father is the one who does all of this. That's who we pray to. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And if you forgive men their trespasses, your Father will forgive you. We are to be like him so that we can be, experience his grace. Likewise, in chapter 7, we're, we're commanded, still, still in the Sermon on the Mount, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? Pray. Because your God loves you. He knows what you need. He wants to bless you. Ask God for that blessing. Ask God for His provision. Ask Him for His help. Ask Him for His protection. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Mean the words you speak. Because He is God, because He is Almighty, we cry out to Him because He's the only one who can fix the problem. He's the only one who, who holds everything in His hand. And because He's our Father, we ought to be doing this all the time. We ought to anticipate His answer, His blessing. Not only do we pray to Him, we trust Him. We trust Him. We don't need to worry. This is the third reason that God's fatherhood matters. Because He eliminates our fear. As our loving Father, it matters because He promises His protection to us. We don't need to fear. Hear the words of Jesus Christ. 
Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Again, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 10... Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Don't fear. Trust Him. He protects you. He has you in His hand. There's nothing in your life that He doesn't control. There's nothing in your life that he can't fix. Paul agrees with Jesus when he says in Romans chapter 8, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We're in His family. We have intimate relationship with Him. He teaches us how we are to live. He gives us what we need so we can have the contentment that Greg was talking about this morning. He gives us the blessings that we require. So God's fatherhood matters because he loves us. It matters because he is powerful and we need to pray to him. It matters because he promises his protection to us and we can trust him. And finally, it matters because God's fatherhood means that we can have hope in hard times. This is sort of related to the don't fear, but it's a little bit different. We can count it all joy when we're being perfected. Because we know that it is God who's working on us and and sanctifying us and preparing us for eternal glory. Sometimes it's discipline. In Hebrews chapter 12, listen to how God's fatherhood manifests itself. And... You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Think about that for a second. Proverbs tells us if if you love your children, you discipline them. He who refuses to discipline his son hates his son. 
If we allow that seed of sin that we're all born with to come into maturity without being clipped, we're allowing our children to grow up into death. That's not love. God insists on truth. God insists on righteousness. Paul goes on in Hebrews chapter chapter 12. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrupted us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. We can trust God's chastening. Because even in, in, in whatever area of our lives that we experience it, it's because God is working on us. He's working on me. He's working on you. That's why we endure hardship in this life. That's why we struggle through. God is working in us and on us. Sometimes it's discipline. And we need that discipline so that we might be holy. Other times it's just simply trials. Persecution. Hardship. We still have hope in the hard things. We still have hope in hard times. In various trials. In Romans 8, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We have hope. Nothing can happen. Nothing can happen that doesn't happen for our good if we are called and who, if we love God. A few verses later. What, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And he concludes that passage with, with a glorious declaration. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. He loves Kai, too. God loves you. He really loves you. In your heart. He knows you to the deepest corners of your your soul. He knows your angst, your anguish, your doubts, your fears. He knows every one of those. He He knows them better than you do. And he loves you anyway. He wants to bless you. And we're going to close this message as we opened it with our text. Which is a declaration of blessing to our God and Father because of the blessings he has poured out on us in his fatherhood. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us by that name and all that it entails. We thank you for creating us. We thank you for governing the world. We thank you for orchestrating all things. We thank you that we can pray to you. We thank you that we can trust in you. We thank you that we can see your hand in our hardship. Thank you that you called us to be reconciled to you in Christ. Lord, we now conclude you Our God is our Father, and He has sent us. His good news. He's revealed himself in Jesus Christ so that we don't need to despair. Jesus is ours. His blood atones for us. He reigns at God's right hand on our behalf. He intercedes on our behalf with the Father. His Spirit is our guarantee and comforter. We are his beloved children. And we don't need to fear anything anymore. What deep words of peace. But God gives us more than that. He gives us bread and wine. The tokens of his blessed grace. He seals his promise in physical elements. He reminds us that this life that we live in flesh and bone is not meaningless. We are joined together with one another in Jesus Christ. We are called out to live the love that he has given to us. And we are invited to participate in his holy life. Knowing that he has forgiven us. He has accepted us. And that he encourages us and he grants us his strength. This meal, this table is for you. Because you believe in the gospel. And you've humbled yourself before Christ. And you've confessed your sins. And that you don't look anywhere else for your salvation. But to Jesus Christ. And so Christ is offered to you. Christ's body. Broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.